Hello, the reading this evening is uh, from Luke chapter 14, which can be found on page 1048 in the Bibles under your chairs. That's Luke chapter 14, beginning at verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone will see it. who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he, he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure heap. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Ruth. And thank you, Callum. I need to thank Callum especially because every time we turn up to church, we always end up wearing exactly the same thing. And so Callum had to go through a a rapid costume change, I think it is, um, just to make sure we don't clash. I think it's because our wives shop at the same um, shops. And um, clearly they don't trust us to dress ourselves, but um, it's a bit of a problem, so thank you for that. Um, you should find a, a um, sort of luminous uh, sheet which will give you a steer on where we're going. Please keep your Bibles open on page 1048. You might have um, raised an eyebrow, one or two things in this, in this reading. It's a, hard, it's a hard text, isn't it? It's, it's not an easy one. So we need to pray for, for God's help. So let me do that as we make a start. Heavenly Father, this uh, is a hard teaching. It's hard for us to hear. It's hard for me to to speak. I pray that you would give us humility. We pray, Father, that you would shape our thinking and base our lives on our great Redeemer and our great King, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. In 1914, one of the greatest explorers of his day, Sir Ernest Shackleton, was about to embark on a great adventure in the Antarctic. A new ship had just been built. It's called the Endeavour. Have you heard of this? The Endeavour. Very famous story. And the story goes that he wanted to find the right crew to man this ship. So he sent out a, 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 to all the newspapers, he, he put this advert to find the right crew. The advert said this, men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, Bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful. Honour and recognition in case of success. Sir Ernest Shackleton. 
he received 5,000 applicants to that job description. Well, if you were here last week, you would have heard, you'd remember hearing Jesus' invitation to follow him. It was a very broad invitation, like Callum reminded us earlier, not just for the religious elite, not just for Israelites, but also for Gentiles. That's the majority of us here. The spiritually unclean, the spiritually poor, the spiritually crippled. And if you look down to verse 25, it seems as if Jesus' generous invitation has not gone unnoticed. It seems large crowds are now traveling with Jesus. And we can picture them, myriads and myriads of people flocking around him on the road to Jerusalem. They're amazed by his teaching. People of all sorts of walks of life are there with him. The excitement, the joy, they found the Messiah and they're with him on the road to the capital. A very exciting time. But as Jesus turns around to, to look at the crowd following him, he, he wants them to be under no illusions whatsoever. A bit like Sir Ernest Shackleton with his rather frank advert. Well, so Jesus, he doesn't want to sugarcoat the truth. He doesn't want to pull the wool over our eyes. He doesn't want to leave all the hard stuff in the small print at the bottom. No, Jesus here tonight, he wants to be absolutely real with us, that following him is going to be incredibly costly. And I make no apology, tonight's passage is hard to hear. It's a challenging one. Uh, don't get me wrong, we, we, we have been invited to the kingdom of God free of charge. We, we have done nothing to gain entrance to this cracking party which <laughs> Callum's reminded us about earlier. But nonetheless, we need to know that being a follower of Jesus will be incredibly costly. You'll see on your sheets where we're going. Our first point is this. Following Jesus means forsaking our families. Look down with me again to verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Wow. (laughs) What on earth can Jesus possibly mean by this? I mean, hate is a very emotive, strong word, isn't it? Well, I mean, it might be worth just pausing for a moment to rule out some of the stuff Jesus can't possibly be meaning by this. Is that helpful? So for the start, he can't be saying, just, ig- just ignore the fifth commandment. There it is behind me, uh, the V. Honour thy father and mother all thy days, that thy days may be long with you in the land. He's not saying, ah, oh, scrap that, get a marker pen, rule that over, ignore that one now. He can't be saying that. He's God. <laughs> But neither can be saying that we should just um, abandon our wives and our children or kick our parents into, into a, in a home somewhere and just ignore them for the rest of our lives. He, he can't be meaning that either because it will contradict everything he says about being a son and being a daughter elsewhere. What then does he mean for us to hate our family? Well, one of an illustration might help. And those of you who are married um, might remember your wedding vows. At least I, I hope you do. 
Um, in the Church of England service, the, the vows go something like this. Uh, let's pick on Callum and Christine. Uh, Cal, uh, Christine, uh, Callum would have said this. Christine, will you take... How? Oh, I got this wrong. <laughs> this is right, okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Callum would have said this. No, the minister would have said this. <laughs> I, I'm getting so confused. If you want to get married here at St. John's, I'm happy to marry you, but I, I, <laughs> I would completely mess it up. <laughs> Let's get this one. I would say this. Hmm. If they weren't already married. Okay. Callum, would you take Christine to be your wife? Will you love her, comfort her, honour her, protect her, and forsaking all others, be faithful to her as long as you both shall live? So when Mar- uh, Callum married uh, Christine, did, what do they mean by that vow? Did they literally at that point forsake everyone else in their lives? Did they, did they uh, delete every contact on their phone? Did they defriend every friend on Facebook? Do they start living in a cave somewhere and say, no, we said we'll forsake everyone else? Is that what they meant by that? Well, no, clearly not. What, what they meant by that is that they're going to supremely give their love to one another. They're going to give their loyalty, their, their allegiance, their affection, ultimately, to one another. And that's what Christ is calling us to do here. Forsaking our families, it, it means to love him supremely, above them. It means to give him our ultimate allegiance and loyalty. And it might be some of us are still quite stunned by this command maybe we've not seen this verse before but Jesus is just being honest with us about what we should expect you might know in the first century to follow Christ inevitably meant to be disowned by your family it meant losing perhaps the love and respect of those who are very closest to you and I know that some of us here today that has been your experience turning to Christ loving him most has been incredibly costly on this familial level. I I think of my friend Henry. I might have mentioned him to you before. Um, I think he began following Christ when he was 17. He heard about Jesus at school. And um, wonderfully, around four years later, when he was about 21, he, he led his mother to Christ. This is fantastic. But his father has only ever got harder and harder and harder to this, this gospel, this good news. And uh, I think a few months ago, he said to my friend Henry, your Christianity has driven a wedge through my family. It was a horrible thing for a son to hear from his father. I think of another friend of mine, he's from a Jewish background, who, who, who turned to Christ, saw him as his Messiah, and his grandmother held a funeral for him because of that. Now, you might hear that sort of story and you think, oh, that's a bit extreme, isn't it? That's a bit of an extreme reaction, a bit of an edge case. I mean, why all this animosity simply around Jesus? Well, I guess it's because normally within a family, there's, there's a shared loyalty, isn't there? There's a shared love, a shared ethic. But for the Christian in the family, our, our first loyalty is to Christ, Our our first love is Christ. Our ethics are defined by Christ. And so for an unbelieving family member, that could be incredibly threatening to them. But there's a challenge here also for those of us who have Christian families. 
Because it's still very easy for us to make them our first priority and love above Jesus. And my last um, parish church in, in Dagenham, the, the culture there was very much around, the, around Nan's house, going to Nan's house on the Sunday. It's, it's very different to here. And, um, and inevitably, whenever there was an event on at Nan's house, church would always lose out. If there was, if there was ever a conflict between something to do with family and something to do with church, family would always win. Now, it'd be weird, wouldn't it, if, if church always trumped family? You know, we're not a cult. You know, you've got to see your family sometime when there are big dudes and things like that. But it would be wrong, wouldn't it, if family always trumped church family? And that would be peculiar. Because our first love is to be Christ, is to be the family he's adopted us into. Now, most of the time, there isn't, you know, they're not mutually exclusive, of course, but sometimes, sometimes there is a decision to be made. And I wonder how often in that sort of conflict do we choose Christ, perhaps, over that other thing to do with family. I found paradoxically the, the way to love our families best is to love Christ most. By following Jesus first, by, by putting his kingdom first, by putting his righteousness first, it will make us better spouses. It will make us better parents. It will make us better children. It will make us more loving, more forgiving, more self-sacrificial. To follow Jesus, it does mean to forsake your families. But be on your handouts. Furthermore, he goes to elaborate. It also means forsaking your reputation. Did you see that in verse 27? Look down with me. Verse 27, Jesus goes on. And anyone who doesn't carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, back in the first century, there's only really one sort of person who, who carried their cross. And it was a criminal on their road on the road to being executed by crucifixion. If you know anything about crucifixion, you'll know it's an agonizing way to die. Uh, these big nails are driven through your wrists and through your feet, and you sort of asphyxiate, really. A very painful way to die. It's a humiliating way to die because you're, you're lifted up, hauled up by the roadside, completely naked. There's no loincloth or anything like that you sometimes see on artwork. You're completely naked in front of the world, exposed. There's also a slow way to die. It would take often days for people, finally, uh, for their lives to end. And as Jesus sort of thinks, what is, what's following me like? What sort of image can I sort of conjure up? What sort of illustration? What, what best describes being a disciple? He looks at the man on the cross, the criminal, and goes, yep, that's it. It's a public, humiliating death. That's the best visual aid Jesus can come up with of what it means to be a disciple. And those of you who work in marketing, you might be going, wow, okay, Jesus needs some help here. Surely this is just terrible PR. I mean, if, if Jesus sort of laid down, sort of toned down some of this stuff, I, I'm sure he would get much bigger crowds. He'll get a lot more people in if he were just slightly less radical. Maybe we're thinking that. But again, Jesus is just being honest with us. He's being real with us. To follow Jesus means to follow Jesus. Because Jesus went to the cross. And that means followers will go figuratively to the cross. So friends, you can't go through life as a Christian expecting to be popular 
It will impact your reputation. It will impact your career. It will impact your friendships. And certainly that was true back then in the first century, but it's just as true now. Let me tell you about Wayne Follett. He was a a very um, highly regarded school teacher. Back in 2008, he heard one of his pupils was was under the weather. He bumped into her parents and and said to them, I'll I'll pray for her. And they, they politely declined the offer, thought nothing of it. The next day, he was, uh, a complaint was made about religious bullying. And uh, he lost his job, simply because he offered to pray for one of his pupils. In 2010, there was a GP called Richard Scott. He um, had a Muslim patient who, I think he had some sort of cancer. And uh, the, Richard, he, he asked that his patient how his Muslim faith helped him uh, through a time like this. And his patient said, it doesn't really at all. And Richard said, well, if you like, I can share with you how my faith helps me through hard times. And the patient said, I'd I'd be interested to hear that. Go ahead. Only a few days later, the GMC have hauled him over the coals. And they've given him an official warning. And it's left an enormous stain on his professional career. Now, you might, again, you might think, okay, those are extreme cases. Those are edge cases. But read your papers. Literally every week we read stories like this. They're becoming more and more common. And I don't think these guys were being abrasive or abusive or weird. (laughs) They were just being normal, public Christians. Now, I guess for many of us, the worst we might experience at the moment might just be the everyday ridicule. Uh, perhaps the loss of respect in the office or the, or the classroom. Um, the suspicion about some of your ethical views. You don't believe that, do you? That, that can be painful, can't it? Well, friends, it's only going to get harder. Are we up for this? Because this is what it means to follow Jesus. It means forsaking your reputation. But it also means forsaking your possessions. You see that C on your handouts? Look down to, to verse 33 with me. We'll, we'll skip over a bit, but you'll see why I'm doing it. Verse 33. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Now here's a verse which is pretty difficult for us to duck, isn't it? Now, I'm a pre- as a preacher, I'm sort of nervous at sort of explaining it away, about, about throwing uh, loads of caveats on this, and, and, and Jesus' point here, completely dying a death of a thousand caveats. Easy to blunt Jesus' point here. I think for some of us here, the pursuit of wealth and possessions, it is stopping us from following Jesus. Now, often these, these are the excuses, what we heard last week, they are the excuses which people used to, 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 re, to reject the banquet, weren't they? Money, it might have become our security. It might have become our status. It might have become our God. If that's you, Jesus says, verse 33, you need to give up everything. Otherwise, you're not my disciple. It's funny, as you read through Luke's gospel, I encourage you to do it someday. You'll see that the sort of people who always end up following Jesus are the poor and the weak and the despised and the lowly and the outcasts. And I guess it's because by following Jesus, they lose nothing, really, because they've got no money to give up. They've got no power to hand over. They've got no reputation to maintain. They've got none of that. But we do, don't we? 
And so as you read through Luke's gospel, you'll see the people who don't follow Jesus are often the wealthy and the powerful and the respected. Think of that rich young ruler in chapter 18. He goes up to Jesus, falls on his knees and says, what must I do to to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus, seeing this man love money more than him, said, go and sell everything you have. And what did he do? He went away sad because he couldn't do it. Well, would, would you abandon your wealth for Jesus? Would you be willing to, to sacrifice a lot to support kingdom work or the needs of Christians elsewhere? Would you be willing to make Christ your security, your status, your God? Now, of course, we're going to see over the coming weeks, there's a lot more to say on this subject of money and possessions. This isn't everything Jesus has to say. There's a lot more nuance here. But, but I don't want to go there too soon because I want this point to hit home. We cannot love money as well as Jesus. They're incompatible. To follow Jesus means to forsake your possessions. We'll think more about that over the coming weeks. Now, back to the crowds. You can imagine these vast crowds following Jesus at this point. And you can imagine that at this point of Jesus' talk, he's only, what, three, four verses in, not a few of them have started sort of slipping away. Hang on, I'm not really up for this. Maybe we're thinking that tonight. Maybe we're thinking, I don't really want to think about this. This isn't easy. Well, Jesus says we need to think about this. That's our second point. Because following Jesus thoughtlessly is disastrous. He gives us a couple of illustrations. Look down to the first one in verse 28 with me. Verse 28. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and he's not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Now, where well, probably about 50 or 60% of you aren't British, so you might not understand the weird rivalry which we have with the French. Um, Nicole understands it perfectly, don't you, Nicole? We, 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 for thousands of years, we've had this sort of strange banter between our sort of cultures. And one of my favourite episodes dates back to the very end of the 19th century. The French have just built the Eiffel Tower, which was to the astonishment and the amazement of the entire world as a feat of engineering, the tallest building in the world at the time. And the French, the English by this, we're feeling slightly insecure. We can't be outdone by them, can we? And so just a few years later, we announced the building of the Watkins Tower in London, which was to be 46 metres taller than the French counterpart. And, and so we begin building this very, very costly endeavour, the Watkins Tower. But three years into development and we completely run out of cash. And the construction ends at this building. I think it was about 30 metres tall. And you can imagine the French newspapers. They loved it. They absolutely loved it. I think for weeks, you know, they called it Watkins Folly. Another example of, of, of British hubris. So what do we do? Well, we knock that down again, and we built Wembley Stadium so we can beat them at football. I think that, I think that, was, the, that was the plan. Well, Jesus' point here in his parable, it's very simple, isn't it? If you don't count the cost before you start following Jesus, you're going to end up looking like an idiot. You're going to look a fool. He he says another parable, a very similar parable in verse 31. 
verse 31. Or, or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. Hannah and I quite enjoy watching the Game of Thrones TV series. Now, I'm aware it's not a show I'd universally recommend to the church, but, but there's a scene in it which brilliantly illustrates what Jesus is saying here. At Stannis Baratheon, he's the, the rightful king of Westeros, and he's about to attack the stronghold of House Bolton, who, who really are wicked. They're, they're, for seasons, they're, they're the evil guys, and they've been deserving their comeuppance. I'm sorry, this is a spoiler. Yeah, someone's going like this, and they're not wanting to hear what's going to happen next. Keep going, la, 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 la. Well, um, we're given an aerial view of the battle. Stannis Baratheon versus House Bolton. We see Stannis' army advance, an aerial view. Here they are, well-trained. They're disciplined. They're determined to rid Westeros of this, this evil house. But then the camera, it, it pans out, still maintaining the aerial view. And you see that Stannis' disciplined, well-formed army is entirely surrounded by Bolton horsemen. And maintaining this aerial view, we witness an absolute massacre. To a man, every single one of Stannis' men are slaughtered. Why? Because they had a king who didn't stop to consider whether he had the resources to win. And he didn't. And Jesus' point here is very simple, isn't it? If you don't count the cost before you start following him, it will end in disaster. This is why I'm an enemy of watered-down, easy-going, lightweight, therapeutic Christianity. It is not biblical Christianity. It sets up the expectation that, hey, if you follow Christ, your life will be easy, your life will be fine. And it is absolute nonsense. It is lies. In many respects, following Jesus will make your life much, much harder. And we aren't doing each other any favors if, if we pretend otherwise. I wonder if, how many of you have, have, have witnessed the pain or have gone through the pain of seeing a, a friend or a family member fall away from Christ. Perhaps many of us. Maybe they once claimed to follow Jesus, expecting things to be very easy, that youth group Christianity. But then they're faced with some hardship, some, some illness or suffering, or, or maybe they, they, they have to make a difficult ethical decision. No, I'm not going to go out with that person. I'm not going to marry that person because they're not a believer. And with these hard choices, these hard things in life, what do they do? They choose the easy option and they abandon Christ. I think those of us who want to have children or one day will have children, this is big implications of how we raise them. Um, when we're raising children, we need to set up the expectation that being a Christian will be very, very hard. It is not normal. It's not the culture. Um, if we don't do that, they're not going to survive once they hit secondary school, are they? They're just going to choose the easy route. They're going to choose to sort of slot in with the crowd. It's going to be hard being a Christian. And I guess that they're going to be looking to us as their role models. They won't be looking to the youth group leaders or the children's leaders. They'll be looking to us as parents. So if they see us um, being wholehearted 
in, in kingdom service. Well, that's what they'll learn for the rest of their life. They look at us and, and see us making costly decisions for gospel good. Well, that's what they're going to do for their life. But if they see us and they see us being compromised, when there's a conflict between sport and church, and we choose sport, well, that's what they'll learn. If they see us and we, we see a conflict between church and, and school or, or, or learning and exams, and we choose exams, that's what they'll learn. Our children, they will look to us as to what it means to be a disciple, which is, quite a, which is why we need to pray for parents, because it's quite a big task. Following Jesus thoughtlessly is disastrous. That's what Jesus says here. But finally, following Jesus nominally, in name only, is worthless. Our final verse, verse 34, says this. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's neither fit for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Now, salt, it only has one job, right? Salt's job is to be salty. If salt isn't salty, what's the point? I like salt. I like salt on my chips. It makes my chips taste nice. I like salt on my path when it's frozen because it means it suddenly nicely melts it. I like salt on my lettuce patch because it means the slugs don't come along and nibble at them. I don't have a lettuce patch, but I'm, I'm, I'm painting a picture in your mind. Salt that isn't salty is worthless. Well, a follower of Jesus has one job, and that is to follow Jesus. A follower of Jesus who doesn't follow Jesus is worthless. What use is a follower of Jesus who doesn't invest in relationships in in a church family? What use is a follower of Jesus who isn't distinctive in his workplace, just looks like everyone else? And what use is a follower of Jesus if he doesn't raise his children to love and know the Lord? A follower of Jesus who doesn't follow Jesus is like salt that isn't salty. It's worthless. I hope you see that throughout this passage, Jesus has been torpedoing the notion that you can be a nominal Sunday Christian. Perhaps we imagine reading this, oh, this, this is just for the really keen disciple. This is for the guys who work for churches, like Andy. This is, the, this is for, the, for the small group leaders, maybe. This is for the really elite, super keen sort of Christian. But for the regular schmoes like me, no, this, this, this isn't for me. I'll just do the regular stuff. Is that what Jesus is saying? Well, no, look, he's really clear, isn't he? This applies to all of us. Verse 26, he says, if anyone would come after me. Verse 27, and anyone who does not carry up his cross. Verse 33, if any of you does not give up everything. If you're here tonight and, and you have ears on the side of your head, listen to what Jesus is saying. Being a nominal Sunday Christian is worthless. It's pointless. It's not worth bothering with. Now, it might be you're here tonight and you're looking in on, on Christian things. And, and at the moment, your friend who brought you is thinking, why on earth did I bring them tonight? They're, they're, they're gutted. They're kicking themselves, thinking, oh, I should have brought them last week or maybe next week. But actually, this is a really great message for you to hear. It's a fantastic message for you to hear because you need to know that if you are to follow Jesus, 
It means following Jesus. But you might be asking, Andy, where's the gospel here? Where's the good news? Where's the grace? Because Jesus hasn't really sold it to us, has he? He seems to be putting us off more than anything. It'd be like that Shackleton advert. If being a, a disciple of Jesus is that difficult, honestly, why do we bother? Well, why don't we just throw in the towel now and just live like everyone else? Well, before I close, I'd just love to share with you just two, two little bits of good news, almost sort of teeing up next week. Two reasons why, why it's really important you do stick with Jesus, why you do follow Christ, even though it's going to be very, very costly. And the first little bullet point on your sheets is this. The first bit of good news is that Jesus only wants failures. Jesus only wants failures. So you've been sitting through the last 20 minutes or so, feeling more and more like a failure, uh, feeling more and more weak, more and more helpless, more and more undeserving of this kingdom invite. Well, I think that's Jesus' point. I think Jesus wants those following him, behind him, he wants them to be utterly dependent on him. He wants them to feel their weakness so that they might throw themselves on their king. And next week, as Jesus continues this teaching in a very famous chapter, we're going to learn how God deliberately goes out of his way to seek and save failures. He seeks and saves the lost. He invites them into his heavenly banquets. And the proud religious elite who think they've got it nailed, who can sat through the last 20 minutes going, yep, nothing to do here. Well, they're left outside in the cold. Jesus only wants failures. But the second bit of good news is this. Jesus forsook everything for failures. He forsook everything for failures. Did you notice as Jesus was giving his teaching here that pretty much everything he asks of his followers... He has already done. Just imagine Jesus, imagine him. Before the beginning of time, he possessed everything. He owned everything. He had all the riches of creation. And yet what did he do with all those riches, all those possessions? He forsook them. And he was born in a cattle shed. He spent most of his adult life without anywhere to lay his head. He had no home to call his own. Why did he do that? Because he wanted us to enjoy spiritual riches. He wanted us to enjoy a heavenly home. He forsook his possessions. Again, imagine Jesus. There he is, the eternal Lord of glory. The the one who's been entrusted with all authority and all power by the Father in heaven. And yet, what did he do with that power and that reputation? He forsook it. And he nakedly was hung on a cross. Everyone was spitting at him laughing at him, mocking him, the Lord of creation. Why did he do that? Why did he forsake his reputation so that we might enjoy a standing with God? He forsook his reputation. Picture him again. There he is, the the eternal son of God, the one who's always been in perfect, loving relationship with the Father and the Spirit, the closest family unit you could ever know or imagine What did he do with that? Well, he entered our world, and there on the cross, he was forsaken by his father. Why did he do that? Why was he forsaken by his family? Well, so that we 
might enjoy our Father, who is our Creator, that we might be adopted into His family. Friends, this is our King. This is the one which we follow. He forsook his family, his possessions, his reputation, and now he calls us to do the same, to put him first. So friends, whatever the cost, and it is costly, we're not going to dodge that bullet, it will be incredibly costly, whatever the cost, it is worth it. It is worth it. Because through Christ we have everything. Jim Elliot once said, as a missionary, young man who died on the mission field, he once said this, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Friends, what we have we cannot lose. Let's pray. Father, strengthen us. Please strengthen us. We, we feel our weakness as disciples, as followers. We are so compromised in so many ways, in the way we think about our lives, in the way we um, even place our, our families above you, our money and our possessions above you, the way in which we put our reputation at work or at school above you. Father, please forgive us. And we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for our King. Please help us by your Spirit to follow him. And as we talk with one another later, please give us ideas about how we might encourage one another to do that, trusting entirely on his grace. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.